Welcome to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Located in El Dorado Hills, California, it is our mission to help others find and follow Jesus. We hope this message inspires, encourages, and uplifts you today. Fired up to be with you guys today, fired up to be in the book of Genesis, diving back into God's word together. And today we are, are finishing up part one of our series as we journey through this amazing, incredible book. And so we are, are finishing our time in the Garden of Eden. And I, I don't know if you've been around for much of these sermons or as we have taken a really in-depth look at the first three chapters of the Bible, which I believe, still believe, firmly believe to this very moment, the first three chapters of Genesis. They set the context not just for the rest of the Bible, but for every aspect of your life and mine. They set the context for the entire reality of our lives. It's the true reality behind everything you face in your life, behind the struggles, behind the victories, behind the defeats, behind the discouragement and encouragement. It is the foundation for everything else in God's word and everything else that we experience. That's what we're getting into with the book of Genesis, and today... We are moving, as John Steinbeck would say, east of Eden. We're getting into the rest of the story, right? We've, uh, a couple weeks ago, Chad, he did an amazing job unpacking the reality of sin and consequences and what that led to and shame and accusation. And as I was looking at this final moment in Eden before they are removed from the Garden of Eden... And as we get into the story of Cain and Abel, which is the first story really after the Garden of Eden, I, I was, man, I was so struck by this one passage that we're going to look at in just a second in Genesis 3.15. And as I began to study this and think about this and read some commentaries on it, I, I was really tempted, and I, I just have to be up front and share this with you guys off the top. I, I almost titled this sermon, and maybe I, I kind of still think I should have, Slay the Dragon, Save the Girl. I'm serious. I almost went there, or maybe Dragon Slaying 101, okay? I promise it's going to make sense by the end of this, but I went with something a little more hopefully applicable, uh, the death of accusation. Is that okay for you guys? I feel like... Death to accusation works for me, right? Amen to that. I don't want the accusation of the enemy over my life. I want to live in Romans 8.1 where it says, there is therefore now no condemnation or accusation or guilt for those who are in. Y'all read your Bibles? Come on. Caught you off guard. I know, I'm just kidding you. I'm just For those who are in Christ Jesus, there's no accusation, no condemnation, and no guilt. It's an amazing promise in Scripture, and we're going to see now where that promise comes from, where that story begins, and I have a question for you. I'll kick things off. If you could choose one verse, one verse, you said one verse that captured the entire story of the Bible, and really the entire story, therefore, of the world in your life, what verse would you pick? And John 3.16 is a pretty good candidate, right? 
It's pretty good. <laughs> you know, God so loved the world that he sent his only son. I mean, there, there's a lot in that whole little passage that really summarizes the beginning and the end of the whole Bible. But what blew my mind, and I'll be honest, before I started studying this past couple weeks, I would not have put Genesis 3.15 on that list. Wouldn't have even made my top five, I'll be honest. Uh, here's why, okay? I'll read it for you, and, and you tell me if you think, yeah, for sure, that's the story of the whole Bible and my life. Here's what it says. Genesis 3.15, I will cause hostility between you. He's speaking to the serpent. This is right after the fall when Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit from the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. And, and then they had the whole saga where they hid from God, and God said, what have you done the reality of sin entered the world and death entered the world. And so now God has pronounced a curse on the serpent. And he's, he's pronounced the reality, the curse and the reality of sin. What happens when we turn away from the source of life is now evident in all the world around us. It infects our relationships, our marriage relationships, our work. Everything about our existence on this planet is affected by what happened in Genesis 3. And now at Genesis 3.15, we arrive to this moment where he is, he is speaking a curse, but he's also promising a blessing. And here's what he says. I will cause hostility between you and the woman, the serpent and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, your descendants and her descendants. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will strike your head and you shall strike his heel. Another word there is bruise his heel. Now, if you were going to pick a verse and say, yep, that's it. That's the most meaningful, important, encapsulate all of life in the entire story of the Bible, Genesis 3.15, I'd be like, I'm not seeing it. I am not seeing it. And yet, commentator after commentator after commentator all says, hey, this is the beginning of the gospel. This is where it all starts, right after things went wrong, right after, they, right after Adam and Eve followed the deception of the serpent and died, right after the atrocity and the death of sin infected the entire creation, God said, I'm stepping in here. I'm going to fix it. I'm going to make it all right. What the serpent set into motion through deceiving Adam and Eve, I'm going to send a rescuer, the offspring of the woman. I'm going to come, in essence, as a human one day, and I am going to strike the head of the serpent. Meaning, if you, if you strike something on the head, it's considered a death blow. To strike something or someone on the heel, that's a wound. And essentially what God is saying is, I haven't given up on you. Story's not over yet. A day is coming where I'm going to put to end everything that was started by the serpent. Everything that went wrong in the Garden of Eden, God says, I'm coming to make all the wrong things right. And friends, that's a picture of the entire Bible and our lives right there. It's amazing to me because... As I began to dive into this verse, this word serpent 
began to show up over and over again throughout the Bible. This theme of God overcoming the work of the serpent and um, who the serpent represents showed up over and over again through the Bible. And so we're going to look at this and we're going to go on a journey Don't get discouraged. I'm not going to be here for three hours, but I'm just letting you know. Here's where we're headed, okay? Starts in Genesis 3, goes to Numbers 21, John 3, Romans 16, Ephesians 6, and then ends all the way in Revelation 12. I'm not kidding you. All right, I found this this past week. This is incredible. Do you know what this is? This blew my mind. This is a picture of every cross-reference in the Bible, So every verse in the Bible, starting in Genesis and going to Revelation, that has a cross-reference or a connection to some other verse in the Bible is portrayed right here. The Bible was written by multiple authors over thousands of years, but friends, it's telling one story. The whole thing is connected. The whole thing is speaking the same thing and where things went wrong right here and the rest of the story is God's intricate plan to fix what the serpent had started to reverse and conquer sin and death and to ultimately bring us back to Eden and perfection and the restoration of all things. And so the first question that I had As I began to unpack Genesis 3.15 and this whole section of the serpent and the deception of the serpent, it's a little bit confusing because as you read through it and you read the fact that the serpent shows up and begins to speak lies, like we read this through a New Testament lens, so we think, man, he's, he's acting like the enemy, like Satan, like the devil, but it doesn't call him that there, it just calls him the serpent. So we're, you know, is this just some, you know, minion of the enemy? Was this just some, you know, agent of the enemy? Or did Satan himself inhabit a serpent and then speak to the woman through the serpent? Like, what was happening here? And I found the answer to that question not at the beginning of the story, but all the way at the end in Revelation 12. Stick with me here. Revelation 12, verse 1 to 17, this is a vision that John is having. And in this book of Revelation, there are moments where John is seeing the future, and there are moments where John is seeing the past, what has already happened, and God is giving details to what has happened in the past. Revelation 12 is about what happened even before the world was created. Listen to this. John says, then I witnessed in heaven an event of great significance. I saw a woman clothed with the sun and the moon beneath her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and she cried out because of her labor pains and the agony of giving birth. Then I witnessed in heaven another significant event. I saw a large red dragon with seven heads and 10 horns with seven crowns on his head. His tail swept away one-third of the stars of the sky, and he threw them to the earth. He stood in front of the woman as as she was about to give birth, ready to devour her offspring as soon as it was born. I will create hostility between your offspring and the offspring of the woman, the enemy, the dragon. He seeks to devour the one thing that could destroy him. Goes on in verse 5, she gave birth to a son who was to rule all nations with an iron rod. 
That is Jesus. Psalm 2 says he will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was snatched away from the dragon, was caught up to God and to his throne. Then skipping down to verse 9, this great dragon, it defines the dragon. It tells us who this dragon is. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan or the one deceiving the whole world was thrown down to earth with all his angels. So it says right here, this great dragon, the ancient serpent, the one from the Garden of Eden, is the devil. It's the deceiver. And he has two agendas in your life and in mine, to deceive and to devour. To deceive and to devour. And we understand right from the very beginning of the story, it's like God is saying, look, I'm sending a rescuer, I'm making you aware of what's going on here, why there's such strife and conflict in your life. I'm letting you know what's happening beneath the surface here. And when you begin to see the full picture of Scripture, you understand that, yes, ultimately, the offspring of the woman, the ultimate offspring of the woman was Jesus Christ who crushed the head of the serpent and reversed what Satan had unleashed in the world through sin, But what you also begin to see as you put the pieces together is that you and I, hang with me, we're called to be dragon slayers. Welcome to church, friends. Here we go. We're about to get full on. We're going there. We are called to slay dragons. We are literally called to enter into the work of Christ And we are called to to follow and imitate what Christ has done. We are called to show the world that there is an ultimate dragon slayer by the dragons that God has given us to fight against and to conquer both internally and externally in the world around us. What struck me about Adam and Eve, and as you dive into this whole passage, he tells Adam and Eve, once he creates them, he says, I want you to rule and subdue all my creation. Have dominion over it. And then just one chapter later, a part of God's creation, the serpent shows up, and instead of ruling and demonstrating dominion over the serpent, what did they do? They listened to it. They honored and obeyed the creation instead of the creator. Romans 1 They listen to the voice of the deceiver instead of the voice of truth, their creator. It's amazing as you dive into this. And here's here's what else struck me. When it comes to the history of humanity, man, the whole idea of this cosmic struggle between good and evil, this whole hero's journey of a knight who is called forth to slay a dragon, whether that dragon is guarding gold or guarding the girl or whatever's happening, this theme shows up throughout human history in every single culture, every single time period of human history. It keeps showing up over and over and over again. It shows up in Greek mythology. It shows up This was amazing. I found out um, the beginning, the origin story of King Arthur is actually the story of St. George. And if you know the story of St. George, St. George is a dragon slayer. 
It's a really cool story. There's this medieval town that's being terrorized by a dragon. And this dragon shows up. He sets up camp in a cave. that seems to be what dragons like, caves, outside of town. And he demands... He demands stuff from the townspeople. And he goes, look, if you don't give me what I asked for, I'm going to burn your town down. I'm going to eat your children. I'm going to destroy you. I want you to bring me um, the first fruits of your crops, your harvest, your animals. I want you to serve me. And so the townspeople live under the tyranny of this dragon. And then finally, the dragon says, actually, in order for me to let the rest of you live, you have to bring me your princess, I want to eat her. Now, George, who is not yet a saint at this point, knight, he was a knight at this point, in shining armor on a white steed, he heard of this dragon and his plan to capture and eat this princess. And he says, not on my watch. And he rides to town, and he faces the dragon. There's this epic battle between good and evil, the knight facing the dragon. He kills the dragon. He rescues the town. And guess what? He gets a girl. That's how the story goes. Think about Sleeping Beauty, right? It's one of my favorite childhood Disney films. Prince Philip, Princess Aurora, Maleficent, who becomes a dragon. Over and over again throughout history, there's something deep inside of us. Look at J.R. Tolkien and The Hobbit. Bilbo Baggins versus Smog, right? This epic epic journey, the hero's journey. And friends, as we move east of Eden, as we leave the reality of Eden, you get right into the reality of our lives. What we're living in right now, when you see the story of two brothers, Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve, and Cain is born first. And I want to read this this to us so you can just hear how the story goes. It says this, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've born a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. He was a farmer, one who harvested crops. Over the course of time, this is interesting, pay attention to this. It says, over the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Meaning once he had already collected enough grain for his own life, his own harvest, over the course of time, when he had some left over, he brought it to God. And then it says, and Abel, his brother, also brought an offering to the Lord, but he brought of the firstborn of his flock, and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. That's the first sign of shame outside of the Garden of Eden. Cain's face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? And then I don't want us to miss this. It's so important. In verse seven, it says this, Cain if you refuse to do what is right, then watch out. Sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is against you, but you must subdue it and rule over it. Does that sound familiar? You must subdue it and rule over it. Adam and Eve, you must subdue and rule over all creation. Think about this. What's happening here? It's a replay of Genesis 3 and Genesis 4. 
You see, Abel trusted God with the first, with the first fruit of his flock, the very first um, sheep or lamb that was born a keeper of the flock, he brought it directly to God. He said, Lord, I trust that you're my provider. I trust that you'll provide more, more flock, more firstborns after this from the flock, more sheep, more cattle. I trust you. So I'm, I'm giving to you, God, the very first fruits of my flock. That's an act of trust that you're my ultimate provider. Cain, on the other hand, said, well, in the course of time, he brought God an offering, not the first fruits of his harvest. He brought God some of the leftovers. And what was happening here? God said to Cain, watch out. Sin is crouching at your door. Friends, what is the offspring of the serpent right here? Sin. And what's it trying to do? It's trying to deceive and devour the offspring of the woman, Cain and Abel. So check this out. Instead of listening to God, because God said, Cain, next time, bring me the first fruits. He corrects them. He says, look, the whole point of this is that you'll trust me. I'm your provider. I'm the one who gave you the harvest. I'm the one that provides flock and sheep and cattle and grain and harvest. You bring me the first fruits and trust that my way is best. In the same way Adam and Eve were tempted by the serpent in the garden when he said, God's holding out on you. He's not, he's not gonna provide for you. He's not taking care of you. He's, there's something better out there that he's not giving to you and you can only have it through this fruit. And they believed it. And so Cain, here he is, and he sees that God has accepted his brother's offering and has rejected his offering. And instead of listening to God and repenting, saying, Lord, I'm sorry, next time I'll bring you the first fruits and I'll trust that you're my provider, your way is best. What does he do? Instead of taking ownership, instead of looking inward at himself and saying, oh, Lord, I repent, I'm turning to you, what's he do? The problem's not me, it's Abel. If he wasn't around here, God would have nothing to compare my offering to. He'd love my offering. Lord, I gave you the same amount. It just happened to be after I already had enough in my own, you know, storehouses. Then I brought you what was left over. The issue here isn't me, God, it's him. And God goes, Cain, watch out. You need to kill that dragon. You need to slay that thing. You need to rule it and subdue it. Don't listen to it. You need to go to war with that thing. Its desire is against you. It wants to devour and kill you. Don't let it. Don't do what Adam and Eve did. You are called to be the master over that. I have given you dominion over that. Don't give in. Verse eight, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and killed him. Very first murder in the Bible. Started with greed, not trusting God with the first fruits. It moved into envy, envying what God, the blessing God had given to Abel, and then it turned into anger and shame, and the fruit of that was murder. That's why Jesus said in Matthew 5, hey, the law says don't murder. I'm telling you, if you have anger in your heart towards someone, you gotta deal with that because the seed of murder is anger. 
Here we have in Cain and Abel, this progression of the offspring of the serpent, which is envy, greed, anger, shame, leading to murder. And God warning Cain, you gotta slay that dragon. It is after you. And the result of it was it devoured the offspring of the woman, Abel, through murder. Friends, every single one of us deals with some level or another of temptation and deception, besetting sin, self-destructive behavior, all of these things inside of us. And the work of our lives is to, by the grace of God, put those things to death, not let them rule over us, not give in to the temptation of and the reality of the serpent, the dragon in our lives. We're called to be dragon slayers. We are called to be like the heroes of old, those who take up their armor and go to war against the things inside of us that would not only destroy us, but those that we care about and love the most. One of the key things that we have to remember is this, that our fundamental problem is not what is out there. It's not the serpent in the garden. It's not the dragon necessarily. It's what's in us. You could think of it like this too, right? The only thing more dangerous than the lying voice of a serpent in the garden is the lying voice of sin in our hearts. It's the offspring of the serpent. It's the offspring of the dragon, and it leads to destruction. I grew up on the Chronicles of Narnia. Anybody else? J.R. Tolkien, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. Man, I, I ate those books up as a kid. I loved them. And I'll never forget reading the first time The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of my favorite of the Chronicles of Narnia. And the opening line of The Voyage of the Dawn Treader is it tells of a boy named Eustace. And, and it says, you know, Eustace Clarence Scrub was like the unhappiest kid alive. He was so awful that he almost deserved that name. I love that line. It's a great opening line. Eustace Clarence Scrub, right? This miserable kid. And he accidentally gets swept into Narnia with Lucy and Edmund, and they end up on this crazy quest. And C.S. Lewis writes of Eustace, and I love what he says. He says, you know, Eustace hated Narnia because he had read only the wrong books. His books had a lot to do, had a lot to say about exports and imports and governments and drains, but they were weak on dragons. That's an amazing line. So Eustace gets into this, this adventure in Narnia, and along the way, they end up stopping at this island that looks deserted. And Eustace wanders off, and he finds himself in this canyon between the mountains, and there is this hoard of treasure with no one around. And inside of him, he thinks, well, maybe this whole adventure won't be such a loss if I can at least bring home some gold. And he reaches out to grab it, and you remember what happens. He becomes a dragon. And as much as he tries to take off his scales and to, to get rid of the dragon's skin to become a boy again, he cannot undragon himself. He can't de-dragon his dragonness. He's a dragon. He's stuck that way. And one of the most moving points in the story 
is when near the very end, because Eustace begins to find nobility and virtue and courage, near the very end of the story, Aslan appears to Eustace and he walks up to him. And Eustace is still trying to get the scales off and Aslan takes his claws and he, he starts at the top and he rips down and he rips off the dragon skin and Eustace is transformed into a boy again. And it's a picture of grace. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have given into the lies and the deceptions. All of us have been dragon-like at one point or another. And everyone said, amen. And this is amazing. The turning point of the story is when Aslan removes the dragon's skin. And C.S. Lewis writes it like this. It would be nice and fairly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome and dragon-like. But most of those we shall not notice because the cure had already begun. That's a picture of the Christian life. The beginning of the Christian life is actually when we're saved by grace. When through faith in Jesus Christ, we are no longer those who are bound to sin and constantly making decisions in line with the serpent and his deception. But by grace, we are forgiven and saved. And now we begin to fight and slay the dragons in our own lives the offspring of the dragon, the areas in our lives that are creating turmoil for all of us. The story of line of scripture goes on, and I was thinking a lot about John 3.16 because, one, it's one of those verses that you really do think, man, this encapsulates the entire arc of the Bible. It's a beautiful verse about God's love for us and how he's gonna save us. Do you wanna see something that blew my mind? I don't care if you say no, I'm going to show it to you anyways. Here's what John 3, 14 says. So right before John 3, 16, we have John 3, 14. And look at this. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus, why on earth, right before John 3.16, did you mention that crazy, obscure story in Numbers 21? What, what does Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness have anything to do with you saving the world? What, what is Moses lifting up the serpent on the, the rod, it says, on the staff, have anything to do with you rescuing the world or those who will believe in you? You see, in Numbers 21, the Israelites were in idolatry and rebellion against God, and they were literally being attacked by vipers, snakes. They're being attacked by thousands upon thousands of serpents from all around them in the sands of the wilderness, and God tells Moses, he says, I want you to, to craft a bronze serpent. I want you to put it on a pole and to hold it up and to instruct the people of Israel to look on it. And the moment they look on it, the, the snakes will stop biting them. What a bizarre 
piece of instruction to give to Moses. I want you to tell the people to look at the one thing that they're most scared of right now. I want you to tell them to look at that serpent, but not just a serpent. You see, how would you get a snake to hang on a rod? Well, you'd have to put a crossbeam on that rod. And so it would look something like this. And so Jesus is recalling this moment, this terrifying moment in Israel's history where they are being attacked and bitten and killed by the serpents when Moses crafted a serpent to hang on something that probably looked like a cross in order to rescue them. Imagine this. Jesus is looking at Nicodemus in this conversation. He goes, I'm going to be lifted up in the same way just like that cross in Numbers 21 was used to save my people from the attack of the serpent, when people look at me hanging on the cross, when the Son of Man is lifted up and they believe that I'm the Savior of the world, they will be saved from the effect of the serpent in the same way. I'm the ultimate. Jesus is saying, I'm the ultimate dragon slayer. I'm the one come to crush and reverse and destroy the work of the serpents. I have come here and now, and those who believe in me and what I'm about to do for them by dying on the cross will have freedom from sin and death. They too will be able to be free from accusation. The enemy will have no foothold or stronghold against them. Galatians 3.13 says this, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus was saying to Nicodemus, to the world, the curse that was handed down from sin through the serpent, through the decisions of Adam and Eve, I'm taking that curse. I'm gonna be the one that reverses that. I want to bring it home with this. The keys can come on out and we'll bring this to a close. But D.A. Carson, one of my favorite New Testament writers, he said, by going to the cross, Jesus will ultimately destroy this serpent, this devil who holds people captive under sin, accusation, shame, and guilt. He will crush the serpent's head by taking their guilt and shame on himself. In Revelation 12, picking up in verse 10, it says this. John said, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of the brethren, the brothers and sisters has been thrown down who accused them night and day before God and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony for they love not their lives even unto death. The accuser. You want to know how Satan works? Deception and devour. He deceives the world and then he devours. So what he does is it's kind of like this. He tempts you into something that deep down in your conscious, deep down from your experience, you know if I say yes to this, if I give in to this temptation, name it. You know what it is. I don't even have to say it. 
You know if you give into it, it will bring shame. It will bring guilt. It will bring destruction into your own life, and it will bring destruction into the world around you, either on a big or a small level. And then as soon as you give into it, what does he do? He comes around on the backside and he accuses you. Can't believe you fell for that again. You're so dumb and gullible. I, I get you every time with that one. Look at it, you're a mess. And then Revelation says he was actually not just accusing you and devouring you with accusation, he was accusing you before the throne of God. He accuses, he deceives and accuses, deceives and accuses, and he keeps you in a cycle of shame. I'll never forget, probably about five years ago, we were back east at um, Lindsay's parents' lake house. They have a lake house in South Carolina, and their house is set on this cove, and it's, it's just this amazing place that we go back to in the summers and we play with our kids and they play with their cousins and, you know, they swim in the cove. It's a secluded little spot and it's right off the dock in their lake. And, you know, I think Sawyer was five, Lily Hope was about seven. And they'd often swim to the other side of the cove or they'd take a little, you know, paddleboard across or a kayak and they'd play on the, the sandy shore on the other side of the cove. And I'll never forget Lily Hope and Sawyer. They were over there with their cousins. The rest of us were just sitting on the dock enjoying the afternoon. And I, I heard my niece suddenly just scream at the top of her lungs, snake, snake. And I look and there is a water moccasin. I, if you don't know what a water moccasin is, it's basically like the rattlesnake of the South. It was about the size of my arm. It looked something like this. And I would say it was about from me to the edge of the stage away from our kids. They are incredibly poisonous, incredibly dangerous. And without a hesitation, without a moment's hesitation, I did what any father would do. I looked around for something that I could strike that snake with and the only thing on the dock was a wooden oar and I dove into the water and I, I swear to you, I would have beat Michael Phelps across that stinking cove with an oar in my hand and I am swimming straight for a water moccasin. Never in my life would I do that. I hate snakes, hate them. I didn't even think about it, didn't hesitate for a second. I'm yelling, kids, get away, get away, run the other way. And this thing is just laid out. On, it looks like a log on the side of the shore. And I, th you know, I'm like, that's a massive snake. And I, I, I swim up and I get on, on the shore. And what do you think I did with that oar? You think I like gently tapped it on the back and was like, here, just move along, snakey. Get up in the woods. Come back and eat my kids later. No. I went straight for it and began smashing it on the head as hard as I could over and over and over with a dull piece of wood. So many times, eventually the oar broke and then with the, the sharp edge of what was left, I began to smash it behind the neck until its head came off. I didn't even think about it. Its body's still wriggling on the ground. Sorry, I had to put that visual in your head. 
I literally, I was just like breathing so heavy and I was afraid myself. And I look back and the kids are crying. I'm like crying. I was like, oh my gosh, like that was so scary. That was so intense. But there was nothing in me that was not going to do whatever it took to save the, my kids. And I'm sitting there thinking, man, that is what Christ did. That's the reality of what he did. He threw himself into harm's way. And I, I think back, one of my favorite moments from the Chronicles of Narnia is in The Magician's Nephew when Aslan, he's, he's talking to uh, the kids about what happened in the very beginning of the world. And he says, he says to them this, he said, before the, the new clean world I gave you was seven hours old, a force of evil has already entered it wakened and brought hither by this son of Adam. Evil will come of that evil, but it is still a long way off. And I will see to it that the worst of it falls on myself. It's a Christ figure. He goes, there's a lot of evil that's been unleashed in this world. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of the offspring of the serpents that you're dealing with. It's crouching at your door. It's seeking to devour you day after day after day. I know about it. I see it. And he goes, I'm going to make a way at the harm of myself. I'm going to be the one lifted up on the tree to take the curse for you so that you can walk in power and you can become a serpent slayer. You can become a dragon slayer. Friends, the gospel, the reality of the gospel is this, and we see it all throughout the stories of dragons, right? Dragons always guard that which is most valuable. They hoard the treasure. They, they guard, they, 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 they capture and guard the girl, the whatever it is, right? And the only way for you to reach your calling, who God has made you to be, is to go through the dragon. There's no shortcuts. For you to step into who you're called to be, you have to slay the dragon. You have to face your own resistance. You have to face the one area that the enemy is guarding most desperately in your life because he knows that if by the power of the grace and by the power of God's spirit, you take the sword of the spirit and you cut the head of that dragon off, you're gonna be an image bearer within the world bringing light and hope to others. That's your calling. That's the calling of all of us is to be dragon slayers. The greatest battles in your life, the areas where you face the most resistance, that's where your calling lies. And here's the amazing thing. Romans 8, 31 to 35, <laughs> Paul. At the end of Romans 16, Paul says, look, I want you to be wise concerning good and innocent concerning evil and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The God of peace will soon crush the serpent under your feet. You're going to be the dragon slayers by the grace of God. And you want to know why? Because the accuser has been cast down. How did that happen, Paul? Well, let me tell you, Romans 8, 31 to 35 Right after he explains the cross and what Jesus has done for us, he says, what should we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who can bring an accusation, a charge against you, against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who can condemn you? Christ Jesus is the one who died, who was lifted up on the tree. More than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is advocating, interceding for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? No one. The accuser's been thrown down by the advocate who is now at the right hand of God. There's no room left in heaven for the accusations of the serpent of the dragon against you because you're in Christ. So go kill some dragons. That's the point. You've been set free, so live free. You've been given the armor of God, the shield of faith, the sword of truth, the helmet of salvation. You've been given the full armor of God to slay dragons in your life and begin to work for the redemption and restoration of the world around you. And friends, it all begins on the cross. When Jesus was lifted up to take the curse that the serpent unleashed on the world, And every week we close our time with communion because it represents Jesus's body that was broken for us on the cross that was nailed to a cross and his blood that was shed for us. It represents God himself swimming across that cove and going to war with that snake and pounding its head into the ground. Friends, this is where the grace of God removes the dragon scales from your life. The cross of Christ is where the power of God is unleashed within you to live new, to walk with Jesus and to put to death those things in your life that are crouching at your door looking to take you out. Friends, if you have not yet put your faith in Christ as your Lord and Savior, I wanna encourage you before you leave today, we have cards in the seat backs in front of you. Please fill that out, drop it in the offering box. See one of us at the the tables, the welcome tables around campus. We'd love to give you uh, a free resource to help you in your journey of faith. We'd love to pray with you. Please don't leave today without taking that step. We have prayer stations at the back of the room on both sides. Our prayer team would love to pray for you. If you have some dragons in your life that you want prayer about, You can write it down on a prayer card, even anonymously, and we'll pray over it this week. The Lord knows what it is and who you are. Right now, I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna take communion together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you were lifted up and you took the curse that we deserve so that you could save and rescue us from sin and death. I pray now, Lord, that today we would know there is no accusation, that (laughs) accusation has been destroyed and killed, that in Christ there is grace and there is strength to fight. Lord, we thank you for the cross, and right now we take communion in remembrance of you. Let's take communion together. Thank you for listening to the Hills Church Sermon Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and if you haven't already, give us a rating so we know how this has impacted your journey with God.
To learn more about us, visit our website at hills.church. We'll see you next time.